0: Okay. I've got a thing that says, got it.
1: All right. Well, we may be live. Now it says we are live. Ladies and gentlemen, we are back. Hopefully this is Logos Media's unspun episode. Well, hold on. It's feeding back in my ear somewhere. I've got to find it. close that window entirely uh unspun episode number what is this uh no, i just closed the window i forgot eight i think season 14 episode eight <clears throat> steve joins jones joins us to uh discuss and understand break down what heresy is blasphemy all of that uh most people have a fairly skewed Opinion of what heresy is, and even if you look up in a typical uh dictionary, it doesn't even properly define heresy. So uh anyway, Steve, welcome back for your mini and time. How are you doing? Good. How are Long you? Long time no see. Yeah, <laughs> we haven't spoken for hours 10, 12 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> So uh why don't we go into what the original foundation of you know Christianity was with logos you know etc?
0: Okay uh, let's answer your first question what's a heresy?
1: Okay yeah, what is a heresy?
0: Uh, now in the Episcopal Church they they once printed in fact they still think it's in print but they don't acknowledge it. Uh, it's called Hall's Series of dogmatic theology, and it's a quite. I mean, if you really, it's quite an involved series. It's it breaks down Christianity as it was once taught uh, traditionally. The Catholic Church is a similar uh, series and stuff like that. But Paul's series of dogmatic theology of the Episcopal Church heresy was defined at, and I quote: "A thought that is cherished at the expense of truths equally necessary to maintain." Now I'd always understood that to be contradiction. Right. Well, you you know, that I don't I mean you could say contradiction straight out, but I think they, you know, there's a there's a little there's a little effort there to make it sound uh, you know, maybe cover more bases and things, but uh, to so, me so
1: basically the law of con non-contradiction would be the foundation of Christianity, while heresy would be contradiction itself would that be an accurate summation
0: uh i think it's broader than that actually and that this can go back into the next question um what you ended up originally with was a, a set of five laws and the first one was this the and i've even heard protestants uh ravi zacharias used to push this a lot uh, was the, the the non-contradiction was the first one The second one I believe was everything is what it is, and the third one was between two extremes there is no middle. You know, it's people look at that. Well, what about white and gray or something black and you get a gray, but that's not what they're referring to. What they're referring to is between on and off. There's no half on or you know that kind of thing. Right. And then the last two principles was causality. Really, everything that exists has to have sufficient reason. And everything that exists has to have sufficient cause. Those were the five basic principles of what the Catholic Church once called scholasticism. And out of that, they felt that they could build up the entirety of Christian theology. uh, And that was the basis.
1: It looks like uh, we managed to get broadcast to most places, but not Facebook. So sorry, folks. We'll have to deal with that another time and get that resolved. But uh, we are live on Twitter and YouTube and probably DLive and the others. All right. So <clears throat> getting back to the topic here. Why don't we dive into uh, Heraclitus?
0: All right. Would be in. In Greek thought, and you have to understand that this was picked up by the Jews around the, you know, the year zero, what we would call the year zero, somewhere around there. Uh, before that, you had the seven sages, uh, and a lot of this stuff you can just look up. But the seven sages were people like uh, they—they call them the sages because they didn't quite rise to the level of what people call would consider a philosopher. They would be. Uh, You know, one would say that all of reality is water, or or some that kind of a broad generalization thing, right? Which was wise for the time period, but it wasn't something we would accept as a philosophy today. Uh, Those seven sages, some people would argue whether Socrates was one of those seven sages or not. They're, They're different lists, list different people, but very early on were two philosophers, and I personally, I. I think they've both been a little bit misrepresented, but it's 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 very good to as an ex, you know a thought exercise to place them as adversaries against each other, and one was Heraclitus and the other was Parmenides. One Heraclitus has been basically sold to us as the idea that the only thing certain is change. Parmenides, it was on the other end of the spectrum, and he basically has been told that change doesn't exist at all it, everything that changes is an illusion so what out of that you get this very odd discussion on what is change and what is causality which still plagues us today because originally when they taught this stuff they they would focus on the idea of what is change and that it it seems like a thought problem that maybe you can't the average person has a hard time wrapping their mind around but you have to consider when you look around you, what if you see a whole world, you've, you know, things grow up, things die, things get corrupted, things bloom. Uh, in order for a reality to be called a reality, you need something firm on which to place that reality. Something has to cause it. Something, if 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 there's nothing permanent reality couldn't be known so the real argument was by heraclitus he he, his famous phrase was you can't jump in the same stream twice right because the stream is always moving but what you know we have no difficulty today looking at einstein and people like that and thinking of thought experiments but i think what where they went wrong on heraclitus is they didn't see a lot of times when they're examining these old philosophers, they don't consider that these are really thought experiments. The thought experiments <clears throat> is if you can't jump into the same stream twice, how would you know? <laughs> and so, you know, Heraclitus decided that the way you knew was underneath all this change, there had to be something of permanence. And that permanence was what he called logos. So that. Through the ages, that logo started, it started blooming into a bigger concept than I think maybe even Heraclitus knew. But if you understand that, you, what you understand is that if the only permanence in the world, you, the world that's constantly corrupting and changing, and the wind blows, all that kind of stuff, what would that kind of permanence have to be that permeated and was ubiquitous through everything? And about the only thing you can envision is in something godlike. It, it wouldn't work any other way. So it, over time, that logos concept started in, infiltrating various thought systems. If you look at the Old Testament, for instance, and we've talked about this, is that it, it's a very odd thing because most people look at logos as something they're not even aware of is in the Bible whatsoever. Uh, most of our Western translations of the Bible came through the Catholic Church, and the, all those Latin translations really translated what we call logos, or the word, into being, in Latin, would be verbum. And so there was no big broad understanding concept of anything logical following that. The first, the West was really kind of exposed to that after a long period of of not, be, It was when the Greek text in the, around the, the 11th, 12th century started coming in, and all of a sudden the West was exposed to the Greek text, and the Greek text illustrated the word logos as the Greek equivalent of what we call the word. Uh, and, so, and, then,
1: and then you discover that it's not just the word, you know, like speaking, but it has, you know, a, a 20,000 word dissertation or more behind it.
0: Yeah, well, that's what eventually became scholasticism in the Catholic Church. Uh, I would argue that, and there's, there's evidence now emerging that the true scholastic thought system kind of evaded the, the, the Catholic or Western Christianity. It moved east out of uh, a city called Nicebus, which was the, the principal, you uh, know, in on the third, second, third, fourth century, Nicebus was kind of the center of education in the ancient world that thought system came back when refugees were fleeing Islam. And so we uh, in the West, uh, you know, 11th, 12th century, all of a sudden got exposed to this word logos. And we're still wrestling with that because most of Christianity does not even, uh, it doesn't, it really doesn't hit their radar screen that this is something important. But if you look at the Jews around the time, you know, the, the first hundred years, something like that before Christ, the, the Jews have started writing what they are now called the Targums, and in the Targums they were really a lot, a lot of times you'd get biblical commentaries, and they'd say, well this is what this means, and people kind of, some people are very big on biblical commentaries, where the Targums were biblical co- commentaries for the, for the Jews right before the time of Christ, and if, and you can look this up online, around that time all these even going back to uh, Genesis and the uh, Moses going up to the mountain and and talking to God and things like that. In the Targums, they're replacing a lot of these words with the word, meaning the logos, very early on in that. And the implication was, and I think you have to tie this back to Heraclitus, and this is a bit abstract, but tying it back to Heraclitus, you think of this sense of permanence and somehow this permanence unifies with the concept of God. And so their expectation very early on was this idea that God would somehow be made manifest. So any time in the Targums where God would appear as a flame or something like that, they started changing it to the word became and the Jews early on had very many names for God, but that they reserved the word, the word, what we would understand as logos as God making himself manifest.
1: So, uh, yeah, and so that's what we have in the case of Jesus Christ, is logos made manifest. Right.
0: And I was going to... Go ahead. Well, that that culminated in a philosopher named Philo Philo the Jew, who basically right about the time of Christ was presenting this problem to Judaism, uh, because... The Jews were very much into the idea of the one God. Philo, on the other hand, was presenting what almost seemed to them like two gods. You have the God that the Jews know, and now you have this God that Philo was proclaiming. And he, he's probably the biggest expositor of, of Logos prior to Christianity. Or, and he's, he's alive right about the same time as Christ. So the Jews had this dilemma going on. How do we unify Logos and God? Because they didn't want to trapse into this into this duality, which that they'd spent uh centuries you know Taking expunging their belief system. Them. Right. And, and so- y-
1: your uh, your book authenticating Christianity exposes the, the duality issue, and a lot of people still get caught up in that when they when they can't grasp the holy trinity, they'll try to go back to the the duality problem which which was exposed and you know expunged as heresy
0: yeah well about a thousand years bc you you have you have the jews trying to incorporate the the, they're wrestling with this idea of a unity but even around a thousand years they were exposed you know this was when they're in the babylonian exile and you know around 400 bc or so they are convinced that the idea of the one God is the answer to it all, but they don't, they still see the problem of good and evil. So rather than separating them out, they kind of attribute God as being both good and evil himself. And so you see in the old Testament where God all of a sudden will punish somebody or something like that. Something today where we say, well, why is that seems awfully evil? Why would God do that? Right. And so, the, the, you know, I've been confronted that with, you know, people b- myself, where they're saying, well, is this your Christian God that punishes innocent people? And I would my answer to that is always, <sighs> the Old Testament, there, there, there's this idea of, especially in, in fundamental Protestantism, that, and I, I'm not far from the idea, but I, I think you have to be careful, that the Bible is this sacred text, which it is but that your understanding of the Bible then is also sacred. And your understanding might be wrong. And so what, what the Jews literally were doing in that those eras before Christianity is they couldn't quite solve the dilemma of good and evil. So they kind of placed that dilemma right on the Godhead. and
1: Which Christianity resolves, but, and it's also, you know, it comes down to agency or free will as well. You know, it's like, well, you know, how could God allow pedophiles or murderers or whatnot? And it all comes down to agency or free will, you know, because otherwise we would all just be slaves to God rather than having the ability to choose righteousness from iniquity and and poor behavior.
0: One, one of the problems with Christianity today, I would say, is that uh, there used to be books written, especially in the Catholic circle, called theodicies. And the idea of a theodicy, and you almost have to think of this, what I'm exposing here, is kind of a theodicy. And the idea of a theodicy was not that you, you browbeat somebody with this, what at that point in their life they might seem as absurd, as a, a, a God that does this and a God that does that. What a theodicy does it is exposes all these dilemmas, and kind of builds you up to the idea that. And this, I think, this probably more reflects what the Jews were going through at that time and trying to resolve these dilemmas. Is a theodicy is specifically written not as here's here's Christian doctrine which you're required to believe. It presents these dilemmas in a way where Christianity is the only answer, and so what happens the Jews at that point in time. Needed that kind of answer to questions that were, you know, kind of infesting their their thought system that they had. So, so Christ appearing in, you know, literally solve. It wasn't just like this. God appears in the middle of nowhere and says, "Hey, believe in me." These dilemmas were were uh, plaguing the Jews, and and how do you solve these things? Uh, so there is a philosophical kind of solution that, that that's demanded because um you you don't as we were talking earlier you don't know what reality is and so when you don't know what reality is you have to kind of guess that becomes philosophy
1: right well this is what you stated yesterday is that uh, the end of philosophy is reality and you know at the same time you know you have this okay logos is truth it's the word it's reason it's logic it's the art of non-contradictory identification and it is also reality itself yes when, when you grasp it in the larger context of things
0: and what but what i'm saying is that if i go or you go into you know, say your sister's house and what we were talking about before and say here here's a whole bunch of propositions i expect you to believe something you find that that people are kind of resistant and even your own mind you know you'd say well why well it's always easier to realize this comes from a a path of of questioning first and so what the jews and i think even the average person right now is sort of in this dilemma of questioning they don't realize they have questions that they that they are finding simple answers to these days and those simple answers don't answer everything
1: well and not only that they You know, when you get caught up in the left-hand path and the new age and all of the Gnosticism, all the stuff that I fell into myself for for many years, uh, you know, with the psychedelics and all of it, it actually, it creates more problems than it solves. And you have to limit your investigation of these matters. You have to believe in the superficial cia mi6 mk ultra version of events and you can't ever fact check and dig deeper into these things because you you discover pretty quickly that the whole dang thing falls apart you know
0: i i encourage everybody to take and in fact i actually love these books myself is you take just anything that you want take take the all the controversial things the basic controversial things like when was the earth flat or what was behind the true trial of galileo what was
1: Ooh, Isaac- eh, now you, you hit that galileo thing most all, everybody out there believes the official narrative of galileo and even that's false
0: yeah everybody believes the official narrative of the flat earth that everybody believed the earth was flat everybody believes Isaac Newton discovered gravity they you know and and I would encourage anybody you know don't believe me I mean I can ex- I can explain it all but there's a certain virtue in just going and reading these things and then take the other point of view and and really dig and see what what was really going on and what you're going to find is that these simplistic explanations were always a bit of propaganda yeah if you, you want to go into Galileo I mean Galileo well, they, they
1: they were always trying to make the church look stupid and when you go into the actual arguments that's not how it was at all and and it's just like the the falsehoods about the witch hunts and everything else that never happened you know
0: well i mean the, the galileo trial it, it really had two a- actually I, f- I found three aspects of it lately that never get really publicized that much one was basically that the main trial of galileo was not about whether the earth was in the center or or the sun was in this. The main trial was he he was literally shifting philosophies away from Aristotelian. And because of that, he was going to Neoplatonism, where he was attacking the efficacy of the body and blood of Christ.
1: Okay, well, so before we dive into the Neoplatonist
0: issue... uh, Before we leave, can I do one other thing? Sure. Because uh, I've got a book here I want to promote. It's not mine. Uh, if you're interested in the discussions that we, we've just been having, I would really recommend this book. You can, you can. I'm, I'm sure it's online. Okay,
1: yet. Philosophy Perennis, and uh, that's by who?
0: Brother Francis Maliff up on top. Okay, uh, and this, this is a Roman Catholic. And I, again, these are traditionalist Roman Catholics. Who most people not this
1: Vatican II nonsense that everybody's confused with. This is as
0: as what we're talking about would have been taught before Vatican II. It's a very it's not a hard book, Uh, it's very concise. It's not thick at all, but you're going to find the basis of what we're talking about here, and and presented in a very, in a way that's not only intriguing and fascinating, but it's easy to wrap your mind around. It's basically a first step in all this. Uh, and I would highly recommend that book. So uh,
1: let's discuss the seven sages.
0: Okay. I don't have a lot to say about them, but uh, let me see if I can find it. The seven sages here. Yeah. I and mean, you can look this up even on Wikipedia. It's not like there's a whole lot to know about them, uh, but basically the seven sages were Thales, Pitacus. Bias, Sullen. Uh, There's an argument over the fifth and sixth Cleobus, uh, Perlander, or Myson of Chene, and Chilon of Sparta. Uh, Basically, what it was is the foundation of a more advanced thought. Uh, What was happening was basically man was starting to question. It it was the, the kind of the birth of science. We, we kind of separate science from philosophy these days, but originally science was science
1: really... from philosophy or science from religion or both. Uh,
0: I, I think the thing was all probably all three really. Right. But, the, the, but there was a, there was this kind of circularity to it, that what you, per, what you thought about philosophically got, got resolved scientifically and what was thought of being truth scientifically you resolved philosophically, so that you had a check and balance going on. In other words, if you had some odd scientific thing you discovered, you needed to, it needed to make sense philosophically, which what we would call logos. If, it, if the results were contradictory, you'd say, well, that can't be truth. It's got to be something other. You have to think about this more before you, so, so you can resolve the problem within philosophy, and then philosophy would speculate on your next discovery, and you know it, and, and then it would it was kind of like a circle that spiraled upward until you got you approach truth closer and closer and closer these things were in a way i would say religion was closely tied to both and you can almost you could almost look at christianity as being the entire process
1: of well, philosophy was,
0: and well, religion yeah
1: of sciences of science yeah um wouldn't you say that science actually stemmed out of Christianity when you get down to it and understanding logos and thinking through all of this? And and once they, you know, once you have Aristotle and looking at things as facts and real, and you have Christianity doing the same, then you have to you know you're going to want to analyze reality right
0: it it depends on how you view science because what happened and this was a very one of my one of my initial things that i studied right along with galileo i wanted to know when i first started looking at this stuff is where do you start and the place i start was a thing called the council the ecumenical council of florence where the catholic church and the uh, orthodox church were under attack from islam and so they thought they would have an ecumenical council to reunite the churches that had been separate since the 10th century 11th century um and so what happened is they invited the orthodox church they invited you know it was kind of the the vatican II of in of the 15th century but what happened is they brought in uh, a guy named Plethon, who was a a trial judge. And they thought he would, because he wasn't really a Christian and he wasn't Catholic and he wasn't Orthodox and was noted as as being a fair person, they thought they would bring him in to be the judge of who was getting the fair deal and how do you make a fair deal and and resolve this conflict. What Plethon did is he brought in books that had never been seen by the West. And the main one was the Corpus Hermeticum. And which was, as we know today, the kind of the most quintessential Gnostic text that there is. And that Corpus Hermeticum, with, the, the, with that perspective, that, that more idealistic occult, I mean, the, the book literally comes out of the occult, but that's what became the modern occult system. That's, that's where uh, occultism got sort of integrated within Christianity as Neoplatonism. It, it's funny because you talk to, to even clergy to this day. They'll realize that there was a problem with Plato, but they think Plato was this one guy and that there's another Plato somehow that resolves this and that doesn't quite fit within the history books. And they'll be saddled with this term Neoplatonism and they never quite hit them that Neoplaton was a reinvention of Plato. Uh, and so what the, happened is that what we a lot of what we call modern science literally came out of the occult. And so our definition of what science was started gradually changing along that time. And even to this day, we're plagued with that problem.
1: All right. So uh let's get into uh neoplatonism. What's funny is there's this guy, Andre Luke's in the chat. He's bringing up uh Stan Tenen. I've got all of that guy's books and everything, but he's he's regurgitating he's not even listening to the show he's regurgitating every lie and propaganda piece that's ever been put out not understanding he you know he's probably one of these people that thinks that god is a man floating in space the typical nonsense you hear he's not even grasping that we're talking about logos here which is that reality and truth are god and he's so caught up, I would in, say an
0: aspect of God, not
1: an, an aspect of God. And he's so caught up in all Abrahamic religions stem from Sumer alien worship. I mean, obviously, this guy is <laughs> out of his mind. He, you know, he's just regurgitating dumb stuff. But uh, he's, you know, these, these kind of people don't even sit down and read the bible for themselves they'll read all of these second and third hand tertiary sources about what the bible says but they never think to themselves huh i wonder well, what the, let's, let's, what the bible actually says and sit down and read it for themselves go well, ahead
0: let's, let's assume for a set second god was a sumerian alien right okay is that true
1: and well that and that's the paradox that we're discussing right yeah, that, here.
0: What you end up <clears throat> with is the euthyphro paradox is right. Which which exists first. I mean, it, it is truth something the Sumerian alien invented so that we believe it, or is the truth have to exist prior to the Sumerian alien so that we have a way of knowing if he is the God or not?
1: Right. Well, and now he says reality doesn't need Christianity to exist. You are all mad. Ha 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 what he doesn't grasp is that Christianity in its true form is the study of reality of logos. And that's that, but he's so uppity in the propaganda that he's been spoon fed from TV and from, you know, nonsense without ever reading the Bible himself. He can't grasp what logos is. He can't grasp that it's all literally about the study of truth and reality. But oh, oh, and now he's going into Sitchin's translation. Sitchin had a bachelor's degree in Sumerian. I have worked for years with an actual Sumerian expert, and they laugh and mock Sitchin's work, who was a Mason and made up the translations. Yeah, and you but, find- but, but, you know, it's, it, see, this, this guy, he, he typifies, he exemplifies the, the type of person who reads all of these second and third hand sources out there, but is too lazy to read the primary source. And all of those, all of those people talking about it, they're all true, but he can't grasp studying it for himself. And it's sad. I hope that you, you know, learn to read what the Bible says for itself before you think, every bit of TV and new age propaganda out there that we're actually going to be discussing in this episode is what is true. So sit down, shut up, Andre, and listen for a while and get off your high horse and think this through. If, if you understand what Christianity is, again, it's literally about God being part reality and truth itself. It's not about a man floating in space or aliens or any of that, sit down, pay attention, learn something. And I used to be agnostic and agnostic. I used to be caught up in all the same crap that you're involved in. And I've spent the last 14 years of the show exposing that stuff. So relax and pay attention. He says he's read the Bible uh, from the books of Razel to Stan Tenen's work. I'm well-versed. Stan Tenen is a hack. I've got his whole collection here, dude. So anyway, uh, if you keep going, you're going to get blocked. You're disrupting everybody. We've dedicated a couple of minutes to your hyperbole and uh, your belief in, in Sitchin and lizard people and all of this other stuff and aliens and, and whatnot. So this is your last chance. You can either listen or, and I'm not talking about when you read the Bible when you were six, I'm talking about as an adult. So go ahead. I
0: mean, let's take that on a little bit. Um, I mean, in order to decide what truth is, you have to have some sort of definition of it. That the classical definition of truth is conformity of mind to reality. So now you're looking at the, the what we call the euthyphro dilemma. Does truth exist before God or does God exist before truth? And you could sort of say the same thing. Does truth exist before reality? Does reality exist before truth? And what you end up with is there's, it's a paradox. You can't solve it. The, the only way you can solve it is when you realize reality and truth or God and truth are aspects of the same thing. They're not contradictory at all. And the Euthyphro dilemma v- literally pushes them together as being, if truth is knowable and truth is virtuous and for truth is uh, something to be sought after that truth has to be, Another aspect of reality, and God has to be another aspect of that truth. It, it 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 doesn't take a brilliant mind to to see that that has to be
1: right. Which came first, the chicken or the egg thing? But it's yeah. literally about the study of truth and reality. It's not what Sitchin says or Stan Tenen and the Miru Foundation and all of this other stuff, and and it's all about you know. The Hebrew alphabet, or whatever, and aliens and whatnot. There is, you know, there is a whole lot of propaganda out there, you know. And I've, again, I know Sumerian experts. They literally mark mock, excuse me, uh, Sitchin's work. And uh, so, let me see. I'm going to see if I can pull up Zachariah Sitchin here. <clears throat> but you know this whole thing and you can and you can talk while i'm looking them up
0: well i mean the the very notion of this is it the whole idea of modern christianity this is what we're kind of rebelling against and this is why i went back to into into studying the original is they've literally created a straw man and so if you want to beat up on christianity you know what well, you're really doing is beating up on a straw man that's been created right. since the '60s.
1: Right. Exactly. You know, in Sitchin, <clears throat> he created the whole farce of the reptilian aliens thing and ancient aliens. You know that <coughs> that uh, David Ike goes into the the whole reptilian alien things. That's from Sitchin. Oh. And in my database, I have Sitchin as an agent or asset counterintelligence and counterintelligence in alt media. And he's also part of the origin of the whole UFO Close Encounters uh, PSYOP that I expose in my in my uh, Spies in Academic Clothing article from, uh, you know, oh, geez, uh, John G. Fuller and his whole scandal there. But, you know, these people are, are so caught up into this new age stuff that you and I are going to expose in this episode. They can't. They can't see their way out of it. So let's get into.
0: Well, let, let's let's again, why, you know, if, if he's so positive and so confident in this thing, to, one of the things I'm, I came to the conclusions I came by, not just by schooling in this, but asking yourself, can you really look at it from the other guy's point of view? Can you really appreciate the other point of view and honestly weigh them? Can you really say the idea of an objective, knowable truth uh, has any weight against space aliens? (laughs) And, you know, well, uh,
1: you know, and what what he's also doing is he's relying on Sitchin uh, uh, with a bachelor's degree in Sumerian. He's relying on him to tell him what the Sumerian scrolls say. And there is no academic out there. There's Many people have debunked Sitchin repeatedly, but he thinks Sitchin is is fact. And how does he know that? He doesn't, Andre has no way to fact check what Sitchin says himself. He cannot fact check those Sumerian scrolls himself. So he's reliant upon this one guy, Sitchin, to tell him, Literally, what to think, and so he takes that as the, the the gospel truth. Ironically, and dismisses any other count that disproves that that Sitchin and these guys are hacks. But let's get
0: into one one thought. Uh, okay, keep, keep your thought. But let's take on the space alien thing. Where? All right. So let's say let's say we had space aliens amongst us. Where'd okay. they come from? Okay. And how did they get here? Space the closest star is one. Place. I have
1: I have a UFO out in the backyard. I want to sell Andre. Uh,
0: the closest, the closest star that would even be contested is something, and it's not the star. In order to have life, you have to have what's called the class M planet. The class M planet, there's very few of so everybody thinks there's billions and billions of stars, but there's stars, but there's not that many class M planets. The closest star is Proxima Centauri. Proxima Centauri, I believe, is 1.6 light years away from the Earth. Okay, we don't know how to travel the speed of light. There's no, literally, no uh, theory that works that even comes close to traveling the speed of light. So where where are you going to find a spaceship that is able to do this?
1: Well, where let's let's go a step deeper. Okay, where did the entire idea of UFOs come from, and I've exposed this in my work for years. I, I'm sure much of the audience already knows what I'm going to say. H.G. Wells, who was, all, all of you who play the drinking game, Aldous Huxley's mentor, created the whole idea of the UFO invasion in his book, The War of the Worlds. Go back and see my episode with Dr. Hans Utter, The War of the Worlds, They invented that, in fact, to try to create doubt on Christian theology of reality and what we know about our our earth and where we live. As most people in the audience know, except for maybe Andre, Aldous Huxley headed the U.S. government's, the CIA's and MI6's MKUltra program. Their goal was to undermine all of this, and sell Gnostic, pseudo dionysus Neoplatonism, and uh, Primacy of Consciousness or Monopsychism as the real religion. And they promoted psychedelics and all of this other stuff. So this is where the whole UFO thing came from. I think there may have been one guy ever who mentioned UFOs before H.G. Wells,
0: but that's it. I, I have one more. <laughs> And one of my favorite philosophers is the Scottish philosopher Thomas Reed. Uh, and it, it, he's another one everybody should read. Um, but he bases the whole idea of salvaging what's really is kind of scholastic thought through where how do ideas trans make a transition from reality to the mind when there's no organ that specifically does that. But in that argument, he actually does refer to a space of space a person from another planet. And shows the dilemma and absurdity of the whole thing. And this is written about the time of 17, you know, mid 1700s. Uh, so people, it's not like a new, a new thought. People did use it as thought experiments and, and did use it as a way of a pointing out the absurdity of the whole thing.
1: Right. <clears throat> now, Andre says, well, you know, in the Sumerian text, from heaven to earth, they came. That means proof of aliens then. Never mind, it could be a whole lot of other stuff. Never mind. he'
0: read those kind of texts realizes there's a lot of latitude because <laughs> you're taking very primitive things and and attaching to the modern ideas.
1: Right, and you know, and several thousand years separation from those ideas. But uh, let's see. And he says, "I don't believe in any creators, aliens, or gods." So okay. he he believes. And, and we're going to go into this uh, in this series. I mean, the whole big bang black hole theory comes out of Darwin and the Gnostics and all these frauds that we're talking about. Darwin, his propaganda manager, and I know you're a big Darwinian, uh, you know, believer in his hyperbole, but Darwin's propaganda manager was Aldous Huxley or no, excuse me, Thomas Henry Huxley, who created the X club and he planted eight scholars in different universities to promote uh darwin stuff the darwin and huxley families were intermarried literally anything you discover from anything that a huxley family member has touched is a hot hot stinking pile of crap and if I've you got, go back I've got another story on. There. hold on and let me just say if you go back and listen to my five or six hundred shows exposing all of this andre rather than jumping it in at the end like a a hot-headed know-it-all, you'd see that we went through and exposed each of these things all along the way before we got to here. Before we got uh, to discussing logos, which you clearly don't grasp, and attacking logos, which you clearly don't grasp, rather than trying to understand it. But let's let's stop feeding, let's stop feeding the trolls. I'll give you one more time, and then let's uh, dive into Neoplatonism.
0: Darwin, a lot of people don't know this. And I only know one book that actually reports this. Well, uh, Darwin actually stole his entire theory. He did.
1: That's correct. He stole it from, uh, what's his name? Uh, I think Wallace. Wallace. Yep. Yep. And who, who rewrote Darwin's whole theory the first time it was debunked? Or was it the second or the third? There's uh, Pigliucci and somebody else who created the, you know, there's been like the, The new synthesis, the new, new synthesis, the new, new synthesis. But here we go again. I mean, you guys are going to be blasted by the end of the show. Julian Huxley rewrote the original Darwinian theory. Julian Huxley's grandfather was Darwin's propaganda manager. Even to promote the whole nonsense of Darwin, Julian Huxley and Pierre Teilhard de Chardin we're behind the Piltdown hoax and a whole bunch of other crap to promote this stuff. And Pierre comes up over and over in the promotion of this Gnostic heretical stuff that's anti-reality.
0: So, there, I think I sent you the paper. It was a paper I think it was published in the Claremont Review of Books, uh, proving mathematically that, that 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 evolution is mathematically impossible. Yeah, fairly recent.
1: Well, you know, you, you have all of the universities and schools. Well, it can't, you know, well, everything came from a big bang and then we jumped out of a pool of mud and never mind, there's no evidence of any evolution. I mean, unless I mean, he's, he's sitting there meditating like a, a vegan chewing mushrooms and he thinks he's, he's evolving, that's the only evo- uh, evidence of evolution that there is.
0: But the but the thing the main point though I think is that I don't care which direction you take this somewhere you have to invoke a miracle. You know, yeah. Some, well, to make well, it well.
1: But wait, Steve, there was a big bang from a black hole, and everything came from nothing.
0: Right. Is it is that not a more absurd miracle than you know,
1: God creating everything through yeah, logos, something. literally through truth and reason? Well, and logic. yeah. And
0: the, the, the worst thing, getting back to truth, is. All right, so there's a big bang, and a bunch of stuff blows up and scatters around, or infl- or inflates it, I suppose is the more correct word. Yeah,
1: from now from nowhere. Inflates and then it inflates and inflates and inflates and expands and expands. And, and then so and then where did, did mine
0: come from out but, of
1: that? But wait a second. Then you had a planet created from these things floating, and then there was a mud puddle on the planet, and lightning struck it, and an amoeba crawled out, and then that taught Andre how, or that Is that, that led to Andre harassing us in the chat on this on this episode. I mean, and some, talk and about some improbability. In some
0: evolves into Descartes and says, "I think, therefore I am."
1: Right. <laughs> I mean, you know, with no evidence. I mean, it's it's completely absurd. But if you want to believe that string of absurdities, go ahead. And he says, "Well, the Sethian Gnostic hijacked Christianity. We have different opinions." The Gnostic hijack. Well, that's what this episode is about: is how the Gnostics promoted their heresy into Christianity and corrupted, corrupted it.
0: Okay. So, so let us go finish up. And no, then we'll go he, back he to just Neoplaton.
1: he just admitted that humans existing is a miracle. So so sit down and be quiet and let's go through this. Back to you, Steve. Let's go to Neoplatonism.
0: Okay. So Neoplaton. the the big problem and it seems like the patch that solves all this neoplatonism really didn't exist as a name or a thing until this very council of florence it's invented by uh a guy who was set up by the medici family and sponsored to become the new breed of priests and
1: And that was the renaissance basically what the renaissance was wasn't that europe was in a dark age and a bunch of stupid people and blah 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 what the renaissance was they brought
0: back Plato. Right. That's, a, that's exactly it. And, but they needed a new name for it. And so the Medici family created this guy named Mar- from, a, from a child on up named Marsilio Ficino. And they trained him as this Neoplatonism. And so it, the whole Renaissance was based on this idea of, you know, man goes up on the mountain and surveys the world and all of a sudden realize he's something special than he was before which is complete absurdity so where so the problem is is now you've got this thing called neoplatonism that they're basically inventing in the renaissance you have to say well what which plato is which plato and so and we've talked about this before plato the only information we have predominantly about socrates comes from plato and a few other sources
1: well but plato was a schizophrenic so how do we know that socrates wasn't plato's little friend
0: yeah well that there are other people writing about socrates but they don't go into this dilemma that plato's using yeah Uh, play socrates is on trial uh, for corrupting the minds of the youth Uh, plato admits he's one of the youth that are being taught by socrates so you can go right on the, I don't doubt, as Aristotle says, that he's, Plato's something, he's a good teacher, it's whatever. But the thing is, the dilemma that you have, and I think we d- talked about this once before, is that you have these three different versions of Socrates within Plato's writing. The first one is the, the, the Ernest Hemingway version of Plato or socrates where he's this rough guy
1: oh that's just i gotta say that's hilarious you bring up hemingway because i was reading the letters at the uh firestone library at princeton and he was a double triple agent yeah (laughs) so so that he's number one of these three socrates is that's a perfect analogy
0: (laughs) and then this this the middle socrates you have this one that's starting to be enlightened and he starts he starts getting all these attributes of a mystic and then by the time at the end, now you've got the full, Socrates is fully Plato. And no, no scholar would argue that at all. That, that's that's the, the vision that exists in scholarship. Okay, so now you have to understand, at the, po- at the end of Socrates' life, according to Plato, he, he is committing suicide. And there's no as far as I know, there's no other source for the suicide. So who is committing suicide at this point? Is it Socrates? or as plato or is it plato as plato using socrates as a metaphor <laughs> my at, you know at my recent thought on this is that plato is giving you his rebirth as an idealist it's it and that literally is the rebirth because he takes a drug he literally takes a drug to commit suicide but the drug in the in the dialogue that we're talking about the drug isn't we assume it's hemlock but none of these things the the death is painful it's not this illuminating thing so was it at some point i believe what's going on here is you got plato just taking it's one of these things where you just take it as what it is you got plato wrestling over which is the true platonic philosophy and as it emerges he's he's literally killing off the socratic one and emerging as this neoplatonist Uh, So I I believe the Neoplatonism has this birth right back at the beginning where Plato is wrestling with his own schizophrenia.
1: Basically, this whole schism that we have in society today, I mean, you could take it back to Satan, but as far as academically, philosophically speaking, this whole promotion of this anti-reality nonsense whether it be quantum physics theory of relativity etc that we'll go more into in a bit all of that you know hume kant all of it traces eventually back to plato yes so plato is the fountainhead of all of this heresy literally well Uh, i would
0: say again the the renaissance introduced reintroduced right uh, well, no, introduce this idea of Augustine, where Augustine, they, they read the, the city of God, which is Augustine, St. Augustine's great writing. But in the city of God, at one point, Augustine says the closest thing to Christianity is Plato. Okay, so that became, yeah. Okay. <laughs> so they,
1: they literally invert it. It's not, you know, the closest thing you could consider maybe Aristotle, but not the
0: whole, the whole thing Augustine teaches is basic, you know, Aristotelianism. But at one point he has this phrase, and every, they they see this as license to wed Christianity to Neoplatonism. But in that same text, you look, uh, Plato reveals uh, Hermes Hermes Trismegistus as the devil's confederate. So even though they may be saying Plato is the beginning of somehow this philosophic thought, he's already in the same text distancing himself from what we would call Neoplatonism. But nobody ever goes back and reads that section of it. There's One of the major sections, one of the major things Augustine is wrestling with is because he was a Manichean for 10 years, I believe it was, before he turned a Christian. So he knew all these occult doctrines. And so the city of God, even though I believe he never, in fact, in Orthodoxy, uh, you know, Eastern Orthodoxy never quite brought Augustine up to the level as a saint because they thought he was always tainted with a little bit of Manichaeanism. That we can go on that some other day. But the main thing is Augustine literally separated himself through one whole chapter, putting down Hermeticism in the Corpus Hermeticum. But by the time you get to the Dead Sea Scrolls, they're already giving license back. And that really was the thing that was introduced at the Council of Florence and was proved a fraud. Yeah. Okay. And, and well, all what,
1: of these occult groups and whatnot are all promoting that, you know.
0: Yeah. And so you get to the time of Christ and they say, well, Christianity was platonic, but the Platonism that they would have used, and they scholarly used that, is not the term Plato, or even Neoplatonism. What they called it was Middle Platonism. And Middle Platonism is really um, a balance between, when you talk about Aristotle and Scholasticism, you have idealism versus realism. And you can't, and so now you're all of a sudden you're back again to Parmenides and Heraclitus. With where you have materialism versus idealism. So the rational person sees Aristotle as really the middle of those two things. So you call, typically, you call Aristotle a middle play, a, a, a middle, a middle realist, a semi realist, I would say. But the thing is, that's really what they're trying to express with early Christianity that was middle Platonism. It's the same, they mean, It's a different words, but they're really ultimately meaning the same thing.
1: So let's get into, uh, you know, and and eventually we're going to have to go into uh, some of your other research on, you just mentioned something that made me think of something we were discussing in the last couple of days. But anyway,
0: let's let's finish finish that, because I think I know what you're thinking. Uh, You probably were thinking of Pseudo-Dionysius.
1: No, it was something else that we were discussing. But we, uh, I have pseudo Dionysius here in the notes here for us to discuss. But uh, I had the Manicheans next on the list.
0: They would be further down the line. All right. Uh,
1: well, do you want to go with pseudo Dionysius, and then yeah, uh, we'll I think get it, to the Manichians?
0: Well, you have kind of one of these transpositions of of chronological order, in that they're portraying Neoplatonism as something that was early, and that would precede Manichaeanism, but in, in fact, it probably came after, but let's treat it as the way they present it. And so what they do is, one of the friends of Paul was Dionysius the Areopagate, which Areopagate is just a fancy word, means judge. So what happens is around as the Roman Empire is getting weaker and things like that, they decide that one of the things that's plaguing the Roman Empire is the teaching of the Platonic Mysteries. So as the as the Christian Roman Empire sees this as a threat to the Empire, they outlaw all the Platonic Academies. And at that point, you have a lot of Greek mysticism, and the, the, they're, they're worrying about where are we going to, are, are we going to let them just burn all the books, or what are we going to do? So what they do is they, t- they take the, the prime Greek occult metaphysical texts and disguise them as Christ- Christian writings and attribute them to this Dionysius, the Areopagate. But nobody, make no mistake, they're trying to invoke Dionysius, the god uh, of the Bacchae, really.
1: <clears throat> yeah, the Bacchanal, uh, the drug god.
0: The drug God, and, yeah. you know, wine and drinking and, and orgies and stuff like that.
1: Right, exactly.
0: So the, the, the point of the matter is that you, that really is kind of the birth of Neoplatonism is what's called the letters of pseudo Dionysius. Uh, I'm very familiar with this because I worked under a rector for a long time who got his PhD in pseudo Dionysius and uh, he was considered the top expert in the world on this, and only maybe about five years ago, I was able to find his paper that for his PhD uh, in Marquette University. And he is, again, he's a propagandist. He made this. He literally made up a a, a, a title for for pseudo Dionysius to give him this this panache of uh, uh, authenticity. Uh, Well, that's, you
1: know, Carl Ruck writes all of these books in favor of Dionysus, Bacchus, Apollo. He's got a book called The Apples of Apollo and all of this stuff. So you can see, you know, the the Ruck, who worked with R. Gordon Wasson, uh, who was MKUltra Subproject 58, you can see how he, as a professor from Boston University and Latin Greek language professor as well, is. Promoting this very stuff that we're discussing here—that was the false, uh, the the heresy.
0: Yeah, and what happens? Another very good book was uh, "The Aryan Christ" by I think his name was Richard Noel. I think it's Yale University or Harvard University. It what it exposes the fact is that Carl Jung, and to some degree Freud and all those guys were robbing these ancient. Mystical religions, yeah, and dressing them up with scientific terms, and then selling them as psychology,
1: right? So that's exactly what uh, Jung did with uh, Hermes Trismegistus, with the Gnostic teachings, uh, Dionysius, etc. That's all repackaged. And who who was Carl Jung? Well, he was. Alan Dulles is the head of the CIA's personal doctor. And when we, and literally lived next door to him. And when we see this whole agenda, you know, perform
0: the same function for the Nazis too.
1: Right. And, and, but when we look at MKUltra ultra and their whole promotion of all of this nonsense through the Esalen Institute and through the uh, changing images of man project out of SRI, etc., we see that they're, they're moving people away from christian belief in logos that reality is real that you can know truth etc into this whole quantum new age uh gnostic neoplatonic denial of reality that's really based in schizophrenia you know and then uh promoting drugs as your way to achieve consciousness rather than discovering truth itself so they invert everything but but Jung was definitely a part of that as as uh, you know Alan dulles's personal doctor I mean you literally jump over the hedge bush and you're at Carl Jung's house versus you know <laughs> Alan right. dulles they can't they can't live any closer other than being in the end of the same roof
0: and and you look at the modern art movement we've discussed this too where you're basically taking a bunch of commercial artists that were used to promote G.I. Jane type posters before the war. And now you want to prove to you know Europe, which is flirting with Marxism, that the United States is more free. Capitalism is more free than Marxism. So they hire these commercial artists to basically take
1: commercial take, Marxist artists at that.
0: Yeah. To take paint and throw it on canvases and throw it on walls. And literally when you or, find or out feces
1: about, or menstrual blood.
0: <laughs> yeah, they're they're literally painting schizophrenia and calling it art. And they artificially raised the price of these things. They created art institute, the CIA created art institutes along with MK Alter and things like that to promote this and to undermine the the true artists of the 40s and 50s and 60s and on.
1: Andre just, Andre just said that, uh, he agrees reality exists. I said, newsflash, then you're a Christian. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So, uh, (laughs) (laughs) um, which is the irony of all this, because, you know, when you get into studying logic and all this, and you and I have discussed this, Ayn Rand and Leonard Peikoff were so close to putting it together, but they were, you know, being Jewish, they wanted to sit there and like in Leonard Peikoff's intro to logic series, he wants to sit there and bash on Christianity. But what does he do? He fails the first step of the trivium when he does it. He doesn't do his grammar on what Christianity actually teaches before he bashes it, because what he was actually teaching, except for the bashing part, was in fact, you know, Christian objective logic of reality and exposing all of the the fake hippie new age uh um quantum physics all of that kind of nonsense today and and you found my research from my interview with david harriman from the ayn rand institute debunking quantum physics and all of this stuff is why it gets debunked because it's the denial of reality and once you see that it's all Neoplatonism and all of this stuff, Hermeticism going all the way back, and literally the promoting of of schizophrenia. Then it all you know connects together. In fact, people like and and Steve just put a new cover on it this week. But you got to read this book from Steve right here. It it there really go.
0: they just came. Woo! It's there.
1: Yeah. So yeah, that's get get the one. It's the same content, just a new cover. But uh you'll want to read that. John goaded me
0: in this changing it because he said the old cover cover looked like dental apparatus or something.
1: All right, if you just catch that top there <laughs> in my defense. But uh, so but that you understand
0: new- when I wrote the book originally, I wasn't writing it for the common reader. I was writing it. I was accusing of priests and stuff who were into Pseudo Dionysius that I had one of their most precious icons on the cover. It's,
1: <laughs> yeah well now now andre is saying that one of the number one writers in modern history against communism was a commie spy i mean you you know you know see people they're so used to taking second and third hand and fourth hand at the water cooler at work rumor nonsense that they never think you know what does ayn rand ever to actually say and go and open her actual books or what does Leonard Peikoff saying his Intro to Logic series and go and study it. Instead, they regurgitate the crap that that they hear.
0: If you're going to study this stuff, you know the ancient world did not have printing presses and ways of publicity and stuff like that. You can literally go back in time and buy some of these, or even download a lot of them. The, you know the, to, to be familiar with a lot of these ancient texts is not this an insurmountable problem you think it is yeah they did, they, they, they're not that many so i mean it, you can go onto archive.org
1: and download every download, single one of read them read it i
0: mean read for but,
1: yourself you know here's the thing is you know you cannot condemn something that you haven't studied yourself you know, most people condense, condemn things based on rumors that they've heard from other people. Second, third hand, fourth hand, fifth hand sources. You know, my, my neighbor heard it on the news and his dog came over and barked it at me and blah, 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 on down the list. And, and, and his neighbor uh, was repeating something that a, that a coworker at work was repeating that they heard. And, you know, and it just goes on and on and on like this. And it's so far removed from the facts, but. What I was just saying, Andre, is the problem with Leonard Peikoff and his attack on Christianity is he didn't study it first. And what are you doing repeatedly in the chat? You exemplify this. I know everything about what I have not studied the primary citations on. Study the primary sources. That means the original source.
0: Um, I mean, hold no, on.
1: I, let me give an example here, and I gave this in an interview a couple of months ago, and I got this from a paper on Mozart, and Mozart being a, 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 a overall a fraud. He was a, his music was actually written by his father and several other people, but these two scholars break down primary, secondary, third and fourth hand sources like essentially like this. So when you think of a source, think of it in terms of water. And let's say you're on a mountain. I happen to live on a mountain. I happen to have a stream next to my house. So it works for me super easily here. Uh, where do you want to get the water from? Where it comes out of the mountain, where it comes initially out of the rocks from the melted snow going into the ground in the first place that it, you know, springs up from the spring? Or do you want to get it down the backside of the mountain uh, where there's you know 150, 200,000 people living in the high desert? And it's traveled past everybody who's washed their stuff into it, and you know, animals have gone in it, and all of this stuff has happened along the way. Well, your primary original source is where the water first comes out of the rocks, out of the spring. That's the the original source, primary right there. The further you go away from that primary source, the more and more diluted and bad the material is occasionally you might be able to get some water, you know, or a source that won't make you sick or won't give you BS. But <clears throat> if you want the cleanest, purest source, you go right to where it comes out of. Again, the further away from the source, let's say, you know, out here in LA, the water travels down the, the mountain goes the backside, or let's say it goes down the front side, then it travels all the way down through LA. And you're, you're out there on the L.A. River Basin, lapping up water there, what's what's left of any river these days. And it's gone 90 miles as it goes to the Santa Monica uh, River Basin or whatever down there where it goes into the ocean. And it's completely polluted and toxic down there. But people don't grasp the difference In the source, they think that the source, as it's pouring into the ocean, is as good as the source where it first came out of the rocks, as the original source from the spring, you know, or just rain soaked in the ground comes out out of the mountain that way. So you have to get back to the original source. What did the original source say? Stop polluting your mind with secondhand, thirdhand, fourthhand, fifthhand sources without studying the original the primaries yourself that's you know what it comes down to
0: i think one of the things you have to do is you literally have to train your own mind over again it's the very nature of mysticism to mystify and create this kind of mental state well i think one of the things you do is forget about christianity forget about all this take something simple like uh what is did Columbus prove the earth was round? Did everybody think that the earth was flat? And then take a week or two and stay neutral on it and gather together all the information you can find and prove to yourself how smart you are and really put yourself in your mind on both sides of the problem. And what you're gonna find, in any, almost anything you take a hold of and you do enough research on all these milestones that we've been told about in history, were not milestones at all. They were literally a perversion of some older thought system, some other truth. Some Most of these people to some degree were plagiarists and selling a doctrine that had nothing to do with anything.
1: Wasn't it Washington Irving that, that promoted the idea that Christians believed in it, the flat earth? And it was, you know, I, I had done early was, research on that in my early thirties that I, I realized that the Christians never believed in the flat earth.
0: Well, prove me wrong. Uh, I don't the, the guy. <laughs> um, what you're going to find is that it was invented. That was the first thing because you they were writing about the Columb. The story of Christopher Columbus was regarded like Indiana Jones, so they had to make it, all, it awesome and you know fantastic and stuff. But the real idea that we have today was invented in the middle to late 1800s in Cornell University. Yeah. Uh, and they basic they they promoted it with the idea of corrupt corrupting thought and these books on this one i I think the name of the two people was one was named draper Uh oh
1: oh no you're you're good i'm just showing the the brain on screen here
0: i believe the name of the two people were draper and white yeah Um, of of one was from cornell university i think one was english but And then there was a, a very interesting rebuttal written by the Catholic Church uh, for the Pope, which is a fascinating read. I can't remember the name of the guy who wrote it. It's probably in my book. Um, but you'll see that, and prove me wrong, that even going back to Galileo, these people knew better. Uh, the, 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 all these things have been purposely, and they're not out on outline, but they're, they're leaving the major portion of this out out there they're not explaining the real problem so i would challenge him to go back and go back to galileo go back to tycho brahe go back to uh all these people that were were working on this but really really do some research where i started in all this is i couldn't believe that the, the catholic church would be so stupid as they were portraying it in the trial of galileo and all these science books Eventually, I found that the Catholic Church wasn't stupid in all this. They, they were the, some of the most brilliant thinkers there were of their day. They they had other issues, and mm-hmm. um, I think last time I recommended a book by Pierre Duhem, and that that is another angle on the whole thing that the Catholic Church the the main one of the main heresies that Galileo is accused of is up until then. You could literally make a a, a theory, a, what we would call today a theory about anything, promote it any way you want. But back then, it was called a hypothesis. To promote a theory meant you knew the mind of God, and to say that you knew the mind of God was a heresy.
1: Well, <clears throat> theory, Theo. Yeah. So it's right in the name, Theo, meaning God. Um, yeah, and they
0: didn't they didn't really persecute Galilee. What the, what they did is they separated all the people even the the good guys and the bad guys and said don't talk about this because it was they didn't want to promote that problem throughout you know society it's not what you think it's not what's in the science books
1: Basically, yeah it, everything gets inverted and lied about because you know you have people like the huxley family and the royal society that, who want to promote all of this fake history and fake science and
0: and not, not and, to and, get,
1: and and attack the church for it
0: Not to get you bumped, so I'll be kind of clever maybe how I say this. Look at what's happening today. Look at who declares they're scientific and who's not scientific. We should have right now a dose of what was going on and all these things because we're living in it. It's the same kind of propaganda. And to think that there's always going to be people that see through this, maybe so, but look at how many people are persuaded by by the news and by things that they just look around you. I'm. I i do not want to get. Yeah. I don't want to get yawn bumped. But
1: yeah. Just
0: yeah. Well, around. you know,
1: and you have to have the trivium. You know, most people don't. There are some that do, but most people don't have the level of critical thinking without at least initially studying the trivium to see all of this propaganda. So let's get into the Manicheans.
0: Manicheans.
1: Manicheans. Manicheans. Yeah. Excuse me.
0: It was the man. Even going back to most people, let's step back just a little bit. Um, there's a, a lot of discussion, a lot of misconceptions of what was called the Council of Nicaea. The Council of Nicaea in the Christian church was where the Emperor Constantine ordered all the Christians to get together uh, to, 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 make, to make Christianity... Uh, an imperial pr- sponsored religion. So, actually, you, you can imagine before that, all you had lots of Christianity, a lot of bishops, and so they're all running around, kind of promoting their own doctrine and this and that. Christianity, up until that point, had been infiltrated what was called Arianism. And Arianism was this kind of dualism. Uh, and so, what happened at the Council of Nicaea is they realized if Christianity was going to continue going down that path, even though the majority of Christian Christians at that time were Aryans, the Council of Nia threw down and said, this is, this is an elitist religion. We have to make it something that the average person can discern truth. And so they wrote what was called the, the Nicene Creed. And I think a few episodes ago, we talked about the Athanasian Creed. Athanasius was the guy who presented the orthodox christian argument the the difference between one point of view was literally the dot on an eye had one existed and the other not gone christianity would have been forever doomed but they took the orthodox way in all this what happened is manny what manichaean was named after was a dualist and he at the Council of Nicaea, most people don't understand, and you can argue this even within seminaries, but one of the things that, that was said at the Council of Nicaea already is that they were condemning the Cathars, and even though the Cathars don't show up again until the next millennium. But there was a, a, clearly a Cathar way of thinking, and the Cathars are literally Manichaeans. Yeah. Okay, so the Manichaeans not only went throughout christianity most people don't realize this they went into buddhism too they went east into china and they went west into christianity the best way i found to explain the manichaeans and this is really what's underneath i think even today with the global warming situation you know that kind of thing is they for example they took the goal they took the command thou shalt not kill literally and took it to its extreme. So what happened is that you ended up with two of two-class society. You ended up with one class, which believed that they, in order to be holy, they couldn't clean, they couldn't kill, uh, they couldn't get themselves dirty, they couldn't, they, they, they were purists. That's where we even get the word Puritan from. And in order to survive, you had to have this lower class that literally did all the dirty work for them because the the, these prefects or perfects their 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 crap literally didn't stink (laughs) as long as as long as they kept their their life pure and and so what happened and this goes back even to the origin you know the the second century with the, the emergence of the Gnostics is they had a game plan and the game plan was that how do if reality is evil they believed that there was a, a legitimate god but underneath him was the, the the secondary bumpkin god called the demiurge and this demiurge mistakenly created reality so the idea was how do you get rid of reality because reality is polluted and it, it does it doesn't deserve to, it ought not exist and so well, then
1: they, they, they start figuring out ways to get rid of their own people in society eventually. Is that eventually, correct? Yeah.
0: And so what they do is they become, they become uh, Puritans. They, they have no sex, They or at least they don't say they have sex. They have lots of evidence they actually were having sex on the side. They, you ended up with this polluted society where on the surface they're all perfect, but underneath they're all, they're all messing with each other's wives and things like that. And so you what you what but the, the, the thought is the thought was that if they just quit having children then their their concept was all the souls of the world were not created at birth or at conception, I should say, right? That they actually pre-exist reality, and so by having reality and they would
1: all come back into one.
0: Well, what they were thinking is that what was happening is reality is that when you had birth you were basically taking a soul out of heaven out of the one and bringing it into a polluted life which he ought to return through through death so they believe that you had to have this pure life in order to warrant being returned to the one which is why the pre-existence of souls idea that all these souls that pre-existed and lived in heaven undisturbed as part of this this borg-like existence that was one of the first heresies in fact uh Origen, one of the early Christians, a lot of people call him a church father, was later condemned by the Roman Catholic Church as being, they never condemned Origen as being a heretic, but they did condemn his teachings because it was based on this very thing. And all of this was an infiltration of this Manny's thought into Christianity. Uh, And we, we just talked about Augustine. Augustine realized the perversity of this all. And after being a Manichaean for quite some time, um, and living at this kind of destitute life had a conversion became yeah. Christian, and became one of the all-time great christians does that answer the
1: yeah all right so the 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 manicheans become the gnostics essentially yes. so or let's, or let's... Versa,
0: depending on how you date all this
1: right you know and you know and then we have pseudo dionysus or However, you pronounce it. Uh Inesius, who, yeah. Well, they, I mean,
0: all this all this emanates from the beginning of Genesis. It does, if you look at the book of Genesis, it doesn't really specifically say who's the good guy and who's the bad guy. The, and so you have the snake becoming the Gnostic Ouroboros. The you it really revolves around a an oddball interpretation of knowing. Knowing at the beginning of this was either knowing, you know, a knowledge type thing, but also knowing was knowing, you know, Adam knew Eve, uh, it, it, was an, it was a euphemism for having sex. Um, and so you have to envision an old, an old, a very ancient language that doesn't have all the nuances that a modern language does. And so there's there's a difficulty where the Gnostics literally began as the, the as their first principle that to know was to have sex.
1: All right. And, uh, well, yeah. And have we covered Gnostics and Pseudo-Dionysius enough?
0: Uh, you tell me. I, I mean, the, the, the ultimate thing was that Pseudo-Dionysius got hidden in what were ostensibly Christian documents called the letters of Dionysius. You know, yeah. Called the letters of pseudo Dionysius. they e- Eventually
1: kind of, they they realized it was all a fraud and they exposed it, but the damage to the church had been done.
0: Well, yeah, they but it still lives to this day. I mean, ultimately a guy named Lorenzo Valla pointed that it was a fraudulent text at the council of Florence, but it, the, the Catholic Church didn't even admit to this until the, nine, the 1800s that Dionysius was still considered somewhat of an authentic, you know, they were, there was suspicion that there was something wrong with it. You know, it's even some of, the, some of the semi-early church fathers, you know, quote him here because they don't know quite what to do with him. But eventually the text, even though it's an act more or less an academic text, it shows up in populist text. The main text probably was the cloud of unknowing, which was a very popular text during the, the Middle Ages. Uh, and in even it's I mean it's still printed to this day. People people think the cloud of unknowing is a, a one. It's it's always it's always this inversion that goes back to what is knowledge? Is knowledge sex? Is it's knowing things? And and so this around the beginning of the Renaissance, they started considering heretics started considering this idea that true Christianity was unknowing, not knowing what it was emptying and that i would say is the birth of this charisma, this love you know not knowing thing that we're so enthralled with today
1: joe in the chat is asking me about psychedelics he's going off topic here let's just address this for a second unrelated but do you think evil people try to use psychedelics for mind control but realize they cannot predict the outcome of the trips i can't see how they are mind controlled Joe, I've done two 250 shows, uh, written extensive articles on how they are mind control and what they do. They cause hypersuggestibility. They cause a schizophrenic break that is promoted as a religious experience rather than logos or truth. I'm going to link you to a couple of articles here to check out on my website. Entheogens, What's in a Name is a key one that shows how they promoted the religious experience. And then I'm going to cite you. spies in academic clothing that shows how they literally made up the whole thing as mind control and marketed it promoted it they knew exactly what they're doing um there's an old saying if you don't ask the right questions they don't have to worry about the answers so you got to ask the right questions
0: i mean um nothing against having a beer or something like that but what a wonderful thing is to take a vice and promote it as a way of salvation
1: right well you know and not only that but you're you're familiar with my article uh the uh uh the flesh of the gods Teonanacatl, and the aztec mushroom death cult i'm going to share screen here again hopefully it shows up so that you you all can see it on screen here but should
0: explain we all got new equipment so we're yeah
1: we, yeah this is you know this is a brand new computer i was using the same computer for the show for nine years and it finally was on its last legs, and uh, this is a brand new AMD 8-core system, and this thing is so fast and blah, 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 but everything is set up differently now. So um, here is that uh, article, and let me just get this box out of the way here. But uh, originally the Aztecs, and, and it ties in really to this whole thing of Gnosticism, Pseudo Dionysius uh, uh, Neoplatonism because they promote it as the denial of reality itself. You you can't know God unless you get high, unless you have a you know basically what they've done is they've sold a psychotic or schizophrenic break as a religious experience. And I I linked you to my article uh, in Theogens What's in a Name on how they literally made up the whole religious aspect of that but you know when we go back and we look at the history of this stuff we see that like in mexico the mushrooms were never used for a religious experience maria sabina came out exposing wasson and said before wasson came nobody ever took the mushrooms to find god that was something that wasson created he literally cobbled together the reports of 12 to 16 different indigenous stories and created a new mushroom religion that never existed before. The history of the uh, mushroom use in Mexico was a massive death cult where the Aztecs would uh, feed uh, the their slaves uh, mushrooms and then sacrifice them on the sunstone and then eat them. So None of you know, you can find this stuff in the original Spanish text and the original Aztec uh, text, like the, uh, oh, like the Florentine Codex, et cetera, but Wasson, Terence McKenna, uh, all of these other people that promoted this stuff, uh, they, they covered up the whole history of this. So here we see on screen, this is Diego Duran. This is a 16th, uh, what is it? 16th century report, I believe. But uh, this is one of the original reports, and he says, It had become as common among these people to sacrifice men on feast days as it is to kill lamb or cattle in the slaughterhouse. I am not exaggerating. There were days in which 2,000, 3,000, 5,000, or 8,000 men were sacrificed. Their flesh was eaten, and the banquet was prepared with it after the hearts had been offered to the devil. And then when the sacrifice was finished, this in Gordon Wasson, the so-called discoverer of magic mushrooms, who who worked with M. Kilch's subproject 58. Uh, he only cites this paragraph and then he creates a, a circumstantial ad hominem attack that because these people were Spanish, they couldn't have possibly seen, you know, Montezuma sacrificing 8000 people and eating them. So he creates a whole lie regarding this last paragraph here. Uh, When the sacrifice was finished and the steps of the courtyard were bathed in human blood, everyone went to eat raw mushrooms with this food. They went out of their minds and were in a worse state than if they had drank a great quantity of wine. They became so inebriated and witless that many of them took their lives with their own hands. Now, if we go down uh, just a second here and then I'll pass, we'll get back on topic. I don't want to segue too long here, but this is the Florentine Codex down here. For instance, every, you know, behind me, I have 26 shelf feet of books on psychedelics, nearly every uh, publication on psychedelics. There is none of these books accurately cite these. If they cite them at all, they take them out of context and they'll never give you the actual book and page number, uh, because they don't want you to find it and see that they're lying because the, all of these guys, they were all CIA, but The lewd youth is a madman. He goes about drinking crude wine, a drunkard, foolish, dejected, a drunk, a sot. He goes about eating mushrooms. He goes about demented. He is restless, dissolute, shameless, presumptuous, lewd, tattling, wicked, a vile, brute, brazen. He is impudent. He consumes his inner substance. He is vain, proud, debauched, a pleasure seeker, a libertine, revolting, filthy, vicious, a keeper of mistresses, a talker. He lives in concubinage. He is given to pleasure, A.K.A. any hippie today. That is an exact, perfect description of any hippie today. So the, you know, so you get people caught up in this horrific, uh, degenerate behavior, fornicating in the mud to their rock idols or their, you know, more accurately said, graven images. And, uh, you know, this is how they fool people. But, you know, I've I've covered this for over a decade on the show and and the links sent you. So check those out.
0: And, you know, those episodes you're describing, I mean, you don't they read the Bakai, It's the same thing. It's, yeah, it's
1: it's all the same. They're just repeating the same
0: yeah. nonsense
1: yeah. over and over and over, you know, and, and they're literally so Plato schizophrenic take well, now, psychedelics schizophrenic you know the psychotic break is promoted as religion they use neoplatonism to overturn christian you know uh christian logos
0: it, well i mean look at the bakai was one of the all-time great plays ever written but go try to find a movie on it you'll never find it yet you go to a lot of these colleges one of the first things they they do is get their kid the kids together and do the bakai and they'll literally go through the dances and you know, they'll use it as a form of indoctrination, even, but it yep. always ends up the same way.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, and another way, and it's in those articles, again, linked uh, that they, you know, their goal with these things is to get you to waste your life partying and doing drugs and going to raves and following the Grateful Dead and Woodstock and all of this crap, uh, Burning Man, etc., so that you don't get your life together and build a future and build a family and, and, and have something so that when you're older, you're sitting around, no kids, no family, all you've done is get high for, for a good portion of your life. And, uh, think and what you know, a
0: wonderful thing. If you, if you're convinced that the world is a polluted place and you want to be an elitist and you'd like to get rid of your competition, get them on, you know, drugs send and them down this path.
1: Yeah. You know, there is uh, one, One quote I want to read here uh, that he will appreciate. Uh, Let's see here. It's from uh, Louis Jolly and West. He was one of the MKUltra doctors under uh, Aldous Huxley. Uh, Aldous Huxley, of course, headed MKUltra, but they don't want you to think, uh, know that. The role of drugs in the exercise of political control is also coming under increased discussion. Control can be through prohibition or supply. The total or even partial prohibition of drugs gives the government considerable leverage for other types of control. An example would be the selective application of drug laws permitting immediate search or no-knock entry. Again, selected components of the population, such as members of certain minority groups or political organizations. But a government could also supply the drugs to help control a a population. This method, foreseen by Aldous Huxley, you guys are going to be wasted after this show. In Brave New World 1932, has the governing element employing drugs selectively to manipulate the government in various ways. To a large extent, the numer- numerous rural and urban communes, which provide a great freedom for private drug use and where hallucinogens are widely used today are actually subsidized, subsidized by our society. Their perpetuation is aided by parental or other family remittances, welfare and unemployment payments and benign neglect by the police. In fact, it may be more convenient and perhaps even more economical to keep the growing numbers of chronic drug users, especially of the hallucination, uh, hallucinogens, fairly isolated and out of the labor market, which is what you just said, Steve, with its millions of unemployed. To society, the communards, communists, communards, with their hallucinogenic drugs are probably less bothersome and less expensive if they are living apart than they are than if they are engaged in alternative modes of expressing their alienation, such as active, organized, vigorous political protest and dissent. The hallucinogens presently compromise a moderate but significant portion of the total drug problem in western society the foregoing may provide a certain frame of reference against which not only social but also clinical problems created by these drugs can be considered there we go i'm done running off that uh, segue now we are back steve theory of relativity
0: (laughs) (laughs) so you sure you want to tackle this tonight
1: well yeah yeah we can save uh theory of relativity big bang quantum physics new age etc for that might be
0: a good thing to do a next one on do a part Um, two on well yeah i mean there's a there's a story behind this that never i at least i don't see it being told and there's a lot of uh intrigue behind that too and it's it's it might be a good thing to just dedicate more than you know five ten minutes to
1: Oh goodness. Well, I think that's a good place to wrap up. Now, Andrea is citing what Terrence McKenna would think. Terrence McKenna was a fraud and a CIA agent and that was in the paper that I just showed on screen 10 15 minutes ago. Admitted he was recruited, he was a PR agent. Let's stop regurgitating what other people think and start looking at the primaries and thinking I'd, for I'd ourselves. I'd like
0: to ask these people, you can look around, you can see the world as it is today. It's, we know what it is. How do you, how do you propose to change people's lives? How do you propose to solve these dilemmas? You've got people intrigued by this mysticism and all that. Are you going to, are you going to bring them out of this mysticism and all this stuff by more mysticism? (laughs)
1: well hey you know we just need to give everybody mushrooms and lsd and that'll wake the whole world up and everything will be better except we'll be in the fall and society would collapse and and you'd have more people living in feces in la than the than the tens of thousands that already are
0: you're you're living in a dilemma of mysticism do you really think more mysticism is going to bring you out of it or a different version of it
1: and and what was the highest point of culture adherence to Christianity or rejection of it? And give that some thought. What's the highest point of family, acceptance and following Christianity or rejection of it? And it seems pretty obvious at that point. Um, Thank you, Matthew Galvin, for your support uh, during the show today. I'm not sure if anybody else donated, but I greatly appreciate it and uh anybody else who supports the show go to logosmedia.com also thanks to oscar and many others who supported the show af- over the last uh, several weeks while i was out oh yeah some good news they finally got the roof fixed but the office ceiling is still not neither is the wall over there but at least i don't have a big branch hanging down over there anymore but uh waiting for the insurance to pay the contractors so that they can come back and fix the wall they got to tear out this whole window and everything which means the library has to go out tree fell on the house four days after i got the library in but uh thanks for your support please like subscribe and share uh steve will uh we'll have you back next week and we'll dive into uh heresy today and you know there's also another angle you and i can take with my research on salem and all of that too
0: Yeah. That's an uh, interesting discussion. We found out that we were both on the same page on that one too, and coming from different directions.
1: Yep. Like, like 50 other subjects you and I
0: have. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Always, always fascinating.
1: Yep. All right, everybody. Thank you so much. And, uh, see you next time. Sorry for the delay on getting the show up. I know I said I'd have it out like, what was it? Seven weeks ago or something. Anyway, good night, everybody, and see you next week. Bye bye.
0: Should I put my test pattern up? <laughs> uh,
1: I have to end it to to.